Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, love technology, right? All right, let's just take a minute or two of quiet. Let us pray. Amen. Yeah, I thought all those jokes were pretty good. I have a joke. <clears throat> we're in mixed denominational company, so I think you'll maybe like this. Uh, so a, a Baptist moves into a predominantly Catholic neighborhood, and uh, the first Friday in Lent, uh, all the neighbors start smelling barbecue wafting over the neighborhood. And uh, they, they go over to the guy's backyard and peek over, and uh, he's grilling up some steaks. And they're just like, this is not okay. So, uh, so they say, we've got we've to make him Catholic. So they start working on this guy, and he's like, oh, okay, he's very amenable to all of this. And so he does the whole uh, catechism thing, and uh, a few months later, they have the service at the church, and the priest goes up, and he's got the holy water, he shakes on him, he says, you were raised a Baptist, you were born a Baptist, but now you're a Catholic. Everybody's, yay! So off they go, and you know, summer goes by, fall goes by, and everything, and uh, first Friday in Lent next year, uh, they start smelling barbecue wafting over the neighborhood, and they're all thinking, uh, maybe this guy didn't understand uh, the finer points here of uh, Catholicism, so we need to go set him straight. So they all go over to his backyard and peek over the fence, and he's got all his steaks on the grill, and there he is uh, standing with some water, and he's going, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, and now you are a fish. <laughs> all right. And that is actually has some vague connection to what we're talking about here. You are going to get to see my incredible artwork today. I'm really excited. Okay. I've got more of them. Don't worry. All right, so let's uh, listen again to our passage of Scripture. Again, this is from... I know some of you are new, welcome, and so this is from Matthew 5, it's a Sermon on the Mount, it's 43 through 47. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your God who is in heaven. 
For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the word for this evening is you, which refers to all of us. Uh, so again, uh, welcome to folks who are not here this morning. Uh, just as a super quick review, our topic for this time together is spiritual community. Uh, on our journey into spiritual community, and we're looking at what that is. And this morning we spent some time looking at what spiritual life and practice is about. And so we didn't say a lot about community this morning. Uh, I'm not going to say a lot about community tonight either, because this is all, uh, in a sense, leading up to a preliminary work getting us into this question of what, what does it mean to have a spiritual life together. So tonight we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about us, ourselves. What is uh, the nature of the human being? What are we like? And in order to, um, uh, to understand this, we have to go way back uh, to when we were just babies. And it's great that there are all these young kids and babies here and almost babies. Maybe we'll have a brand new baby to start with. I mean, hopefully not, but maybe, seems like. Um, and so when you're a baby, uh, you encounter, uh, once you come out, uh, you encounter this incredible world. And the baby is receiving massive amounts of information through our senses. And the baby has a particular sort of overwhelmed kind of look, right? We all have seen babies, we, we know that look, just the, that's the baby look. And the baby is just getting all this information, this massive amounts of information. And we are getting so much information that we cannot possibly process it and organize it without some sort of system uh, to do this with. And luckily, luckily, our brains provide us with this system. This is just built in. And what this system is, is it is a way of creating a sense of a separate self and a sense of the world. Okay, now, what we do, so here's the good drawing. Bet you guys really can't wait for this. Okay, there we go. That's as good as it gets. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we're getting all this information, this massive amount of input, this massive amount of input. So how do we make sense of this? Okay. How do we deal with this? Well, we've got, uh, luckily, we've got this incredibly simple way of dealing with all this information. We sort it by three categories. 
That's the starting of our sorting system, three categories. Uh, there is the information that we like. There is the information that we don't like. And there is the information that we ignore. Pretty good, huh? Pretty good, okay? Now, uh, the interesting thing about this is that the ignore category, the ignore category is about 95 to 98% of all of the information about the world that comes our way, we ignore. We just screen out 95 to 98% of the world. Isn't that incredible? Now, some people are like, I don't believe you. How do you know that? Well, you can test it for yourself. Very simple. We all drove here, right? We all drove here from approximately the same kind of area. So we had a couple hours on the road, maybe four or five, if you came from further away. You passed a lot of cars on the road, right? All those cars... All those cars, the visual information about the color of the car, the make, the model of the car, the license plate of the car, all of that information hit your eyeballs, which means that it also went into your brain. Because right? eyeballs don't discriminate. They just send everything along back of your brain. All that stuff went there. Now, how many of you can tell me the make, model, color, license plate number of every car you passed on the freeway? Right? Nobody. And we couldn't even do it if we tried. Right? But we certainly don't even try. We just ignore it. Right? Maybe there's one car we remember, right? Because it's like the car we had when we were a kid, or it's a really weird-looking car, or it's just it's our favorite car. Right? One car, maybe, we remember. All the rest of it we just ignore that information. And this is what we're doing all the time with just about everything. Now, the rest of the information, we pretty much split 50-50 between the other two. Right? So, you know, a couple of percent here and a couple of percent there. That's on a good day. Most most of the time, we're kind of in the 98% realm. So 1% of the stuff we split up. We then take this information. So this stuff is gone. We then take this information, and through a fairly complicated process, we then create our entire reality. We create ourselves, our sense of ourselves, and we create our sense of the world. And this is something that doesn't just happen once. This is an endless, repetitive activity that our minds are involved with. And what this does is this creates this little bubble around us. Those of you that were at a youth gathering last fall, saw about the bubble. We are encased in this bubble that is our world. The thing is, we think it's the real world. We don't know that we're in the bubble. 
We don't know that we're in here. Okay? All right? So we, we take the world in, we screen it out very effectively, and we then actually project it back out onto everything else. Okay? This system is amazingly effective for maintaining our sense of self. Now, here's the thing about this. This is not, this is not like a bad thing. Right? This is something that everybody does, and it's necessary for survival. And in many ways, right, the story of the Garden of Eden is actually the story of this. Right? So if you think about the Garden of Eden, right, so Adam and Eve start out, and one of the things, a couple, a couple of you have asked me where I'm from. I'm from a small town out west. You may have heard of it. It's called Los Angeles. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so one of the things that I love, you see, about the Garden of Eden story is that paradise is exactly like a California hippie commune, right? Everybody's eating fruits and vegetables and they're naked. This is true. I, I didn't make this up, right? Uh, but what is it about Adam and Eve, right, that really is uh, at issue is that they don't know anything, right? They have no awareness of themselves. When they eat the apple, what happens is this. They wake up to a sense of their separate selves, Right? And, and suddenly they decide they don't like the hippie commune, right? They, they don't like vegetables and they don't like being naked, okay? So as we wake up, right? And, and this morning I mentioned this whole issue of original sin, right? This is what original sin is. Original sin is not actually a moral issue. We, talk, we usually talk about sin in terms of, we think of it as a moral issue, right? Like I do something bad or I do something good, right? That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is what we call an ontological issue. It's a fancy word. It's almost a five-syllable word, right? What that means, it has to do with our state of who we are, our being, right? Our state of who we are. This is a description of our state of existence. We cannot help this, okay? So, and in fact, it is the only way for us to manage our reality, okay? So we, uh, we do this, this happens automatically. We have no idea that we do it, right? By the time you're four or five years old, you've got a lot of this in place. You don't remember it. But at that point, it's happening over and over and over again, okay? And it's, it's very powerful, very powerful habit. And from a spiritual practice teaching point of view, this is what uh, we refer to as the, the ego state or just our ego, right? It is our separate sense of self, and we are in this little bubble, we're in this little bubble. And, you know, the bubble helps us to function and to do stuff, 
So that's the upside of the bubble. The downside of the bubble is that we are ignoring 95 to 98% of reality. That's the downside. Now, one of the things about this bubble, as I said, it contains everything we understand about the world. It also, therefore, contains our idea about God. Is there. Now, remember, outside of the bubble is big 100% of reality. It's way out here. So, um, God, of course, is hanging out in 100% of reality, doing whatever God is doing. And we're in here with our view of things. Now, um, of course, we're not alone. We have lots of bubbles. Okay? So there are lots and lots of people, and lots and lots of people uh, surrounded by their own bubbles. And then what happens next? What happens next is that these people form groups. And the groups have their own sense of reality. And the most basic level, this is what is called the tribe. The tribe. And the tribe has all kinds of shared bubble states. And so, for example, you know, you go to a church website, let's say. You go to a church website, and it says, click on what we believe. So you click on what we believe, and there's a nice little list there. All right, now, does everybody in the church really believe exactly that? No, of course not. But it is a statement of the tribal ego state. And what that does, you see, what all this is about is it's not just about functioning. It is also about security. Because here's the thing. When we wake up to the vast reality of the world and the fact that we are a separate self in the vast reality of the world, it's terrifying. And the other thing is that once you realize that you, you are a separate self, you also realize that you can be a not-self. <laughs> right? So once we realize that we're alive, we also realize that we can be dead. And we don't like that. We don't like that. And we realize that there's a lot of different ways that we can disappear. There's a lot of different ways that we can end up not existing. And of course, people for most of human history, that threat, that existential threat, was far more real and far more immediate than it is for most of us in our position in the world. We mentioned today down at the games about 
people in jousting times only lived till they were 35, right? Um, you know, it, it wasn't that many generations ago, it wasn't that long ago, that people saw people die all the time, right? Grandparents who lived in the house died. Uh, people would see people die on the farms. People had kids die. People would die in accidents. At, at the Crookston Church, there were all the different women's groups, you know, and there was this one woman's group, the, the super old women's group. They were all pretty old in the women's groups, but there was the super old women's group. I think the youngest woman in that group was 80. Uh, every single one of the women in that group uh, had had a child who had died. Because, you know, they were having kids back in the 20s and the 30s, and kids died all the time. Right? So, for most of human history, this threat of non-existence has been very real and immediate to people. And so, this process, this process is one that has developed right, to try to keep us alive as long as possible. Right? To try to keep us from not existing. Okay? And so one of the things that that means about this state is that once we have it, we really hold on to it. <laughs> Right? Once we have it, we really hold on to it. And we want to keep it at any cost, even, even if this state is harmful to us. Right? That's one of the really interesting things. You know, people will say all the time, like, gee, you know, that person is doing that really terrible thing, or that person is in a terrible relationship, or that person... I don't understand why they don't just leave. I don't understand why they don't just stop drinking. I don't understand why they just don't stop overeating. Yeah, we actually do understand it. <laughs> we do understand it very well. We understand it uh, because of this, because it has become their world, their habit, and we love our bubble even if our bubble is killing us because it's my bubble. It's my bubble. Now, it's, it's not a coincidence that this is ring-shaped. Any uh, Lord of the Rings fans? Right? This is my precious. This is my precious. I like it. Even if it's killing me, it's mine. I want it. Right? Okay. So we will hold on to this pretty much at all costs because we think it's the whole world and we don't really know that there's anything else. Okay? We really don't know that there's anything else. This is one of the reasons, you see, 
why then silence is so threatening. And by the way, and there was some good conversation I heard. I, I want to clarify a little bit about when I use the word silence. So when I use the word silence, I'm not just talking about like I'm in a room by myself and it's quiet. Right? So you could be at home, let's say, by yourself. Nobody's there. It's quiet. And you're just running around doing stuff. Okay? That's not the kind of silence I'm talking about. Uh, what contemplative silence is about is actually letting go of all of your activity and entering into a reflective stillness. That's the silence I'm talking about. Right. So this process, this process is actually threatened by the spiritual life. That's the interesting thing. This is why the spiritual life is challenging. Because, because God, so again, remember God's sort of hanging out everywhere, floating around. Um, and God is very interested in communicating with us. God is very interested in engaging with us in a real kind of way. But this process, remember, because this is spinning always, this bubble is very, very thick wall it's very exciting to us. We're really engaged in it. And that prevents us from attending to the divine, which is in 100% of reality. Okay. So when Jesus comes along and makes this comment about, well, you know, everybody loves the people that love them. Jesus is pointing out this whole setup, right? Because not only do we have these individuals within the ego states, and we've got the tribe, but of course we have lots of other tribes all over the place. And what happens, what is it that we do when one tribe bumps up against the other? What? Fight. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just kill the other tribe. Right? You just kill the other tribe because, you see, anything that is a threat to this system, we try to eliminate. So this is why um, I know that, that none of you ever get into arguments on Facebook, um, but you've maybe heard that some people do. And this is one of the reasons why arguments, and people are like, gosh, why do arguments on Facebook never work, you know? You know, I've got these, I've got these absolute clear facts on my side, and the other person just won't get it. Right? Anybody ever heard of that happening? No? No? Yeah, <laughs> yes, okay. Okay, I've just stunned you all into silence. Okay, well, you see, if you understand this system, you understand why uh, facts don't change people's minds. And psychologists have actually done a lot of studies on this. They're like, facts don't change people's minds. Why, why is this? Well, now, you all, as brilliant, contemplative, uh, knowledgeable people, understand why. It's very simple. The facts go into the ignore category, 
and you go into the don't like category. Right? That's what happens. Right? So I present you with facts that go against what you like. You ignore the facts, and I go into the don't like category. And we're good to go. <laughs> no problem. The world stays just as it is. And that's what we're doing all the time. That's what we're doing all the time. Right? And mostly, you see, what happens is that we only discover the walls of our bubble when we bump into them. And so we, so we actually have this term, right, culture shock. Right? That's what culture shock is. You go to this other culture, and you're like, oh my gosh, they do things really differently here. I don't like that. Right? Because when we're actually in another culture, it's, it's really, you know, 2% get through, gets through. It's, you can't ignore the 100%, like you're trying to ignore 100%, but a couple percent get through, and you're like, I don't like any of this. Or maybe you think, I do like this, this is great. But it's kind of weird, right, that term, it's weird. No, it's not weird, it's just not your bubble. They all think you're weird. Right? One of my favorite stories about this comes from my 13-year-old past. I'm reading the newspaper one morning, and there's this great article about the first commercial airline flight to Fiji. I know I don't look 300, but, you know. So here's this article, and uh, TWA, an airline that doesn't even exist anymore, uh, flies to Fiji. And, uh, you know, in those days there were stewardesses, and so the stewardesses get off the airplane to greet the Fijians who have come to meet them, and uh, some of the people who have come to meet them include a group of women dancers. So the stewardesses get off the plane with their blouses and their short skirts, and the Fijian dancers come to greet them with their long skirts and no tops. And everyone is horrified. <laughs> Except me as a 13-year-old boy. I'm like, this is a good article. <laughs> right? Because in our culture, women wear tops, but it's okay to wear short skirts. And in their culture, it's really terrible to show your legs, but it's fine to not wear shirts. Well, which one was weird? Right? Okay? It's a great example of a collision of bubbles. Right. Now, what the spiritual life does then is it recognizes this reality, and it recognizes the fact that God is interested in talking to us in a real way, engaging us in a real way. It's also recognizing that we, as human beings, to become fully human... Right? We want to overcome our existential fear of death. And this is basically what Jesus did. Jesus is like, I don't care if I die, whatever. Right? We overcome our existential fear of death. We, we want to get out of the bubble. That's the basic goal of the spiritual life, is to get out of the bubble. Now, the good news is, that God also wants us to get out of the bubble. 
and has designed us in such a way that if we engage in these spiritual practices, the bubble begins to break down all by itself. This is the really cool thing. Because if we had to break down the bubble, it would be hard because we don't even know it's there. So the nature of our minds is such that this speed of mind, which remember I said that's the first thing you encounter, right, when you start sitting, is yourself. All this over and over again. But the more we engage in our spiritual practice, what starts to happen, slowly but surely, is that the bubble begins to dissolve all by itself. And we start noticing a lot more things. A lot more things. And now that we've got these cool brain scans, we can actually measure this. Very interesting. Turns out that people who've been engaged in spiritual life and practice uh, they are aware of five times more of reality than the average person. Five times. That's a lot. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, there, there is there is no there to get to because remember this isn't static. This is dynamic. That's the one thing I can't show on my cool picture. Right? Our brain's always trying to do this over and over and over again, so it's always trying to fill in the holes. <laughs> uh, but uh, what starts to happen is that you begin to become aware of this process. So as I said, right now we don't even know what's going on. You actually start to see it happening. Right? And so what, what begins to go on here, and this is what's really essential for the creation of spiritual community, is that we begin to have this wider view. We start to have a wider view. We begin to relax, right? This, the creation of this takes a tremendous amount of energy. Tremendous amount of our energy. This is one of the reasons why people are so anxious, right? Is because we're always engaged in this and it takes a lot of our creative life force. So this, we begin to relax more, right? We begin to become more comfortable with who we are. And we also begin to have a more direct experience of the real divine, not just our idea of God. And what that does, you see, is that as we encounter this living divine reality, what begins to happen is that we actually start to lose that existential anxiety. We're not afraid anymore. And the Bible over and over and over again says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And we're like, I'm terrified. <laughs> because we're, we're constantly trying to solve the existential fear through our ego state which will not solve that existential fear. It'll put a Band-Aid on it for a little bit, 
And then we wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, we're like, ah! But when we begin to actually have an experience of God, that existential fear begins to go away. And now we can actually open ourselves and take a stance in the real world. We can become more human. Right? This image of the divine that God has placed in us actually starts to come out. And this happens on a, on a felt level, on an interior level. It also happens physically. When people go on long retreats together, they start to look different. Right? Because we carry all of this tension in our muscles and everything, and when we start to relax, we actually look different. We begin to kind of radiate a certain sort of light. Okay? And again, the great thing is this happens all by itself as we engage in these practices. But again, the challenge that we're always up against is that we're always trying to do it ourselves and fix it and make it happen and turn it into another little ego project. Right? And so that's, that's the thing that we're always working with as we come to our faith practice time. So any questions at this point? Yeah. Uh, well, if you don't work on your spiritual life, it gets worse before it gets better. Right? Because this just tends to ossify and increase over time. Now then what's interesting is that for a kind of small percentage of people, right, as you... Uh, face the reality of death in a more intense way, um, this actually starts to also break down spontaneously, which is why often 90-year-olds are way more cool than 60-year-olds. Because 60-year-olds still have this really entrenched, and 90-year-olds are like, what the heck, I could die any second, I don't care. Right? Now, as I said, though, that's just a small percentage. You also have some 90-year-olds who are horrible, right? Because they are fighting death tooth and nail. Yeah. So it just, it just gets worse as you get older, basically, <laughs> without any kind of practiced life. Yeah. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why kids love spiritual practice, because this is not as solid yet. Yeah, and their, their bubble is still all like, woo, fluid, weird, kind of. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So does change of environment sort of help with this? Yeah, it does. It does, absolutely, because you're forcing yourself to kind of 
bump into other places. Right? So this is one of the reasons why actually the, the current uh, amazing increase in worldwide travel by young people uh, is actually a potentially really hopeful and positive thing. Right? Because they're, they're you know, challenging their world all the time by doing that. Well, yeah, so again, if we all start to do our spiritual practice and teach our kids spiritual practice, that really helps. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, some really good questions. Ah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we do spiritual practice stuff all the time. Yeah, they, um, well, so, um, so one of the things within our church life, right, we did all these practices. You know, I just started having people do it all the time. And, and so they grew up learning all these things. Um, and I didn't have a spirituality program that people could then say, I don't want to go to that. They just had to come on Sunday morning and sit in silence and learn to do all this stuff. Oh, they were so mad at me. It was terrible for a while until they were like, that's the best part of the worship service. Yeah, so. Okay, one more. We, we'll, we'll say more about all that. But thank you, that was good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good quote. That's a good quote. Yeah, the, the ignorance is fine. The, the only thing um, that I would just say is that to call this ignorance gets a little confusing with this ignorance because it's just a different thing. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's people call this being asleep, right? That's another common term, the asleep state, right? All right, well, time flies when we're having fun, and uh, I'm done for tonight, but this is the next stage of our little journey into community. So, were you, are you going to say something? Right, okay, thank you. <laughs>